listening to the Current Reality Podcast, where we talk about staying anchored in biblical reality within the current of modern culture. We are your hosts. I'm Michael Cleary, and with me is Wade Thomas. We're both on staff at Christ the King Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, which makes this podcast possible. So, Wade, I'm going to kick it over to you to get us going. What you got for us today? So, we have been uh, discussing for several podcasts the spiritual realm, uh, how the world is haunted by evil spirits uh, and the angelic and the fact that God is a spiritual being, God is spirit, um, allows us to to know that there's a fuller, thicker world with a semi-permeable wall between us and the spiritual reality in it. Um, and we have not done a good job in Christianity or modern American Christianity of accounting for that reality. So we've talked through uh, how abortion, uh, transgender mutilation surgeries and uh, the LGBTQ movement, how there are particular aromas of the demonic yeah. within that. We've walked through the three falls. Um, we've accounted for the spiritual reality in general. Today, we want to talk about how Christ is triumphant and his his victory over um, the forces of hell, the forces of the satanic armies uh, ultimately culminates in the cross and his ascension and his return. So can yeah. you flesh out for us a little bit of that. Yeah, I can. Uh, I, I realized just now I've, I neglected to mention our um, listener questions. So uh, just a couple, mm. what Wade just said, I totally agree, but I'm going to uh, pause for a quick commercial break. Mm. Um, you want me to do like a jingle, like a little... Do a jingle. I'd love that, please. Dun, 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 dun. Listen to questions. Okay, go ahead. Okay, <laughs> have you have you listened to that NPR? Uh, was it This American Life where they do they did an entire episode about the hold music that is on like so many so many places you'll call and they put you on hold and there's this it's like got like this hand clap it's like wow. uh, yeah um, if you heard it if I played it mm. for you you big I so know that hold music because I've heard it it's everywhere it was like a guy who who made it and he worked for Cisco Systems I believe. They used it at their company for their hold music, and somehow it uh, it ended up being used in like you know offices and mm. hold music. It's like uh, Walgreens Pharmacy. I called them the other day, put me on hold, and I'm like, "There's that music." I mean, I can't remember the last time I was on hold for anything. I feel like everything is text or email or yeah. app. Well, yeah. it's like whenever I call a place, I'll be like, "I want to talk to a person." And I don't. Like, I think if I had a prescription to get filled and I went on hold, I would just decide not to take the medicine. <laughs> what if you were? What if it was a life saving drug? Anyway, we're getting off off track. Yep. Okay, uh, listener questions. Um, Current reality podcast at gmail.com. We're going to do a listener question every episode. Current reality podcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions. We would love to hear from you. Um, send us feedback, hate mail, um, mm-hmm. whatever you want. Someday, Lord willing, it'll be at kingsdomain.gov. Ooh, I like that. Mm-hmm. Kingsdomain.gov. That's right. Hashtag post mill. We might need to just spell it G U V. Yes. Just, <laughs> yes. Kind of like the British people do. Mm hmm. Like, right, Gov, you know, like that. That's good. Um, other other announcement is um, King's Domain Conference coming up April 13th through 15th. Um, theme is Clear Speech for a Confused Age. We'll have Aaron Wren, Josh Dawes, Michael Foster, Chase Davis, and myself, Michael Clary, will be speaking. Um, 
here in Cincinnati, Ohio. It's not a huge conference, so it's a fantastic opportunity to um, to meet people and connect with people that um, are like-minded. So very excited about that. We'll have a link to the event in the show notes, but register for it. Come out and hang out with mm-hmm. us. Special musical guest, Carmen. Car- he died. Ooh. That so, was tasteless uh, on my part. I apologize. I'm sure hey, Carmen you, is in heaven. You're 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 so you're just soulless. All right. You, I do feel genuinely bad. But um, let's just uh move on. Let me lighten the mood with a taste of crazy. All right, there we go. This actually won't lighten the mood, but all right, here's a here's our taste of crazy. There's a Newsweek article. This was 2018. And in this Newsweek article, the headline is the number of witches rises dramatically across the United States as millennials reject Christianity. Mm. Um, How so, old are millennials now? What, what? Uh, so is it, it's they mean it, in their thirties people born in the year. What, what? There's something about the year 2000. Okay. All right. Was it, they, uh, they weren't born in the year 2000. Those are Gen Z people. Yeah. So it would be, um, they came uh, of age in the year 2000. Maybe. So we're probably talking about people in their late 20s, early 30s, mid 30s, something like uh, that. I think I think millennials are more like yeah, pro- yeah. I think mid 30s um, would be more on the older end of millennials. All right. So then we got people who are adults doing this, who are doing what you're yeah. about to read. So millennials reject Christianity, um, and as they do, there's a number of them becoming witches. Mm. So here's some uh, some stats. One survey said in 1990. There were 8,000 Wiccans in the United States. You know what Wiccans are? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's I, like I, a... Yeah, it's like a pagan witchcraft type thing. I, I used to live not too far from Yellow Springs, Ohio, which is where Dave Chappelle lives, but it's also like a very black magic, Wiccan-y little town. I did not know that. Yeah, Antioch College is there, <clears> so it's <throat> kind of got this sort of liberal arts, pastoral sort of feel, but yeah, it's it's got a big kind of black magic-y... Is, is there is is there like a like a national park or maybe a state park there? Uh, yeah, I'm sure there is. Yeah, I can't I can't think of which one it would be called, but yeah, I'm sure there's. It, okay. It's a very green rural part of the state. Interesting. Okay, yeah. so I did not. Well, eight thousand Wiccans. So Wiccans is a uh, type of witchcraft. Mm-hmm. They would call themselves witches and warlocks. So in 1990, eight thousand Wiccans were known in the United States. 2018, that number jumped up to 340,000 Wiccans, mm. from 8,000 to 340,000 in a little less than 30 years. Mm. Um, I think that a lot of people might think it's like, well, this is it's not a big deal, you know. It's just their it's people, a hobby, yeah. Like model trains, yeah. It's a it's people's overactive imaginations, but I, the thing is, like, I I don't think we should just dismiss that. Um, and I am convinced that no, I, I do think there there may be just like you have people that would say they're Christian, but they're they don't really practice. There may be some of those in Wicca too. But I do believe that these are there are those that really dabble in occult practices that are um, supernatural element is involved. Mm-hmm. They're they're communing with evil spirits. Um, Meaning, you think people do actually successfully talk to an evil spirit within yes. the Wiccan thing. Yeah, so do I. I, I just do. wanted to make sure our listeners understood. We think people do this and sometimes actually make contact with a real spiritual personality. Yes. That's malevolent and evil. Yeah. I, I do believe that. Me too. Yeah. So this, this shouldn't be surprising, though, because we see in the New Testament there's um, 
demonic encounters. There's and there's sprinkled throughout the Gospels, but even then, um, there's a lot more than meets the eye than uh, you might you might suspect. So to to modern minds like us, um, I think well, when I say like us, I'm just saying people in the modern world. There's a tendency to think about stories about angels and demons as bizarre uh, because we don't experience this typically day to day experience. But in the ancient mind, that was not the case. There was a, a an expectation, uh, a, a knowledge that there were spirits everywhere. The world is filled with spirits, and that was that was just part and parcel of their worldview. Um, and part of this is the Jewish expectation before Christ that when the Messiah came, came, he would defeat evil spirits. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just like modern evangelical Christians. We think Jesus came to die for our sins, which he did, and that's a true statement. But that is not all Jesus came to do. Mm-hmm. Jesus proclaimed a kingdom, and the kingdom of God is not only conquering, defeating sin and death and human beings, but it is conquering and ruling over the entire uh, spiritual and material realms. So for in the material realm, in human beings, that is, we repent of our sin, we confess, and we're forgiven, we become adopted into God's family, that happens. But, but, but what we're going to do today is talk about the gospel from the spiritual perspective, mm-hmm. because Christ's death, burial, and resurrection accomplished more than the forgiveness of sins. That, that's what, that is the benefit that, as it is applied to humans. But there was also an angelic rebellion, and the death of Christ addressed the angelic rebellion as well. He came to crush the head of the serpent. That's right. And there's a reason why that dragon features so prominently in the book of Revelation. Yeah, that's right. Now, we've this is the final uh, of this short little mini-series on the demonic and spiritual warfare that we've been doing. Um, so today we want to just tell the gospel story from the cosmic perspective. We're talking about how Jesus uh, set things right after the angelic rebellion of Genesis 1 through 11. Can you define cosmic? Cosmic... Um, Spiritual. Okay. Yeah. And by spiritual, that, that's a good question. What I mean by cosmic is more the uh, not not necessarily flying out in a spacecraft mm-hmm. to Pluto. Uh, I'm talking about um, the spiritual realm. Yeah, that that's probably not the best word. I, I think it's fine. I use that word myself. I think the same way you do, but I do know people, they might think of like the Jetsons or something. Uh, you know, <laughs> Meet George Jetson? Right. Wasn't Cosmo like the name of their dog or hey, something? Hey, that was a... That was a, a a pop culture reference of a TV show from the that 80s you actually that yeah, I okay. got yeah I got that's good that's One, good the but Jetsons. I never did watch the show okay so you yeah so we're still back to you whenever I make a reference to like Family Ties or Major Dad I did or, watch Family Ties okay, so there's like one show that I can reference that you would have watched yeah I, I, maybe I just watched different shows or but maybe. I mean I feel like or I, maybe you weren't raised by television like I was I, not I'm, raised I'm kidding my parents were good parents but, <laughs> um, I did watch a lot of TV. But cosmic, yeah, uh, the the Greek word cosmos, right, kind of refers to the whole created world. Yeah. It's like, okay, if we could zoom all the way out almost to God's perspective, what would Christ's death, resurrection yes. look like from there? Not merely from I'm Wade in 2023 in Cincinnati, Ohio. What does it look like for me? Oh, he saved me from my sins. From way up there, what's it look like? It accomplished yeah. way more than that. Yeah. So like the word cosmos is the the Greek behind the word world mm-hmm. in English. Um, so there's a, you see, for God so loved the world. I think that might be cosmos. There. Yeah, I think so. And so it's, 
it doesn't mean for God so loved planet Earth, right? Um, and its inhabitants, which He did, and that's all true. But I think there's just more more scope than we often see or acknowledge because the Bible was written uh, for humans um, and to humans. Yeah. So it's it's natural going to tell the story as it applies to us, but the story is not merely about us. So there, there are other elements of the story, but um, it's almost like if there were, I don't know, but there are other things that happened that the Bible alludes to and hints at, but doesn't, doesn't give us everything that we might be curious about. Right. And we may not be the audience for that part of the story. I mean, that's C.S. Lewis, I think in Miracles or Problem of Pain, one of the two, he, he calls what you're describing, what I'm describing, he calls it nature. And he doesn't mean like nature, like trees and raccoons and, you know, foliage. He, by nature, he meant the whole, everything that was ever created, everything but the Trinity that exists. And he describes it's it's something like it's tangy, salty, uh, and he uses all these adjectives to describe this big, thick world filled with demons and beavers and mountains and clouds. And um, and he's like, it, it's something that God loves. He yeah. made it and he's going to redeem us out of it and he's going to remake it someday. And we don't get to just cast it aside and think that it's. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's fascinating. I'd I'll see if I can find the citation and maybe we can put it in the show notes. Yeah, that'd be cool if you do. Well, let me read a scripture that kind of puts it in a nutshell and then we'll, we'll dive in more deeply. Um, Colossians 2.15, this is kind of a summary statement of the, of the work of Christ. It says, he, referring to Jesus, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So the gospel is a declaration not merely to humans, but also that the demonic realm, the the rebellious realm of evil spirits has been defeated and Christ is victorious. So um, that's, that is what we want to explore today. So let's do a deep dive. We've talked before, and I, uh, I'll assume that, uh, that you've, if you're listening to this, that you will have heard the other episodes in this series. So I won't... Um, I won't, I won't explain like the book of Enoch um, and what it represents, but basically it's short version. It's not Bible, but it is a book that the Bible authors were familiar with and referenced. New Testament writers were familiar with and referenced. And I do think it represents true things that happened, but God did not see fit to include it in scripture for that. It was not inspired by the spirit. That doesn't mean that it doesn't report true things. So we think there are uninspired books that tell true stories. Yes. That could be useful to us. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So I, I want to read a couple of excerpts uh, from the book of Enoch, and this is First Enoch 15. Um, and this this tells us things about uh, the origin of demons. So First Enoch 15 um, says, this is, this is a, the Lord speaking, um, according to this book, saying, you should intercede for men and not men for you. Wherefore, have ye left the high, holy, and eternal heaven and lain with women? So we're referring to the Genesis 6 story of the Nephilim. We, we talked about this in, our, in the episode prior to this one in this series. So God is pronouncing judgment on the... Those rebel spirits who the captured rebel spirits. women. Yeah. And the rebel spirits that did that are called watchers, and they're referenced here as watchers. Um, but the, the children that were 
spawned by the union of the Watchers and human women are Nephilim. Um, so he's, so God is pronouncing a judgment on them in this story. He says, Wherefore ye have left the high, holy, and eternal heaven, and lain with women, and defiled yourselves with the daughters of men, and taken to yourselves wives, and done like the children of earth, and begotten giants as your sons. And though ye were holy, spiritual, living the eternal life, you have defiled yourselves with the blood of women, and have begotten children with the blood of flesh. And, as the children of men, have lusted after flesh and blood as those also who die and perish. Therefore have I given them wives also that they might impregnate them and beget children by them, and thus nothing might be wanting to them on earth. So what God is talking about here is he's, he's pronouncing a judgment on them and saying you will, you will reap the consequences of your sin. Like the thing that you set out to do, which is to, to have sex with human women and get them pregnant, it's like, God is permitting that to happen, but there will be consequences that play out from that. All right, here's uh, one more section of this, and then I'll, I'll make some comments. First Enoch 15, it says, And now the giants who are produced from the spirits and flesh shall be called evil spirits upon the earth, and on the earth shall be their dwelling. So these are the Nephilim, the giants. Evil spirits have proceeded from their bodies because they are born from men. And from the holy watchers is their beginning and primal origin. They shall be evil spirits on earth, and evil spirits shall they be called. As for the spirits in heaven, in heaven shall be their dwelling. But as for the spirits of the earth which were born upon the earth, on the earth shall be their dwelling. And the spirits of the giants afflict, oppress, destroy, attack, do battle, and work destruction on the earth and cause trouble. They take no food, but nevertheless hunger and thirst and cause offenses. And these spirits shall rise up against the children of men and against the women, because they have proceeded from them. So he's saying like the, the children that were born of these, this union between the watchers and human women, uh, they bore these giants. And these giants, um, when they die, their spirits are, they neither, they're not welcome into the underworld. And we we know some of these giants, right? Goliath would be one. Goliath, Og, Og would be one. Yeah, okay. and these are Bible characters that are described with their unusual height. Right. The Bible doesn't call them Nephilim, but the Bible uses the Nephilim word in Genesis six, and it tells us these men were giants, and we're allowed to do normal yeah, arithmetic so, and say, well, yeah, it's a little bit more than just doing the arithmetic because there's. Um, I don't have this fresh in my mind, but uh, Michael Heiser write, writes about this in his his work. But he, he talks about the the genealogical connections. Um, so the the Rephaim, the Anakim, uh, Zamzamim, um, that are around after the flood, but in in yeah. the days of the Canaanites. Yeah. So if you trace the, if you trace the ancestry, you can see how they're connected to the the original Nephilim, and then the Philistines would have been uh, considered part of of that grouping. So it's, it's more than just connecting dots. Um, but it, the Bible doesn't say, and Goliath, who was a Nephilim, by the way? No, but I think even if you didn't have that genealogical record, you would still have the fact that the men uh, who are with Caleb and Joshua, they say, hey, we were as grasshoppers in these guys' sights. And um, there are, there are, I think there's literary clues that yeah. say, hey, that thing I told you about in Genesis 6, 
a couple of books ago. Yeah. Now that Joshua and his men are entering Canaan, or now that David is fighting this guy who's nine cubits tall, or what, six cubits six tall. Six cubits in a span. Uh, yeah. Just harken back a little bit. Yeah. I mean, so I, I agree. Heiser's work is probably necessary to know, know for sure, but I think there are some literary yeah. clues that would allow you to go. Yeah, for sure. And the clues are, um, it, it's, I mean, any, whenever you encounter somebody, like there's a, there's a guy that, um, Patrick White is our, mm-hmm. yep. uh, so we have a sister church, Christ the King Church, Eastern Hills. Uh, Patrick White is Nigerian and he's the, the lead pastor of Christ the King Church, Eastern Hills, which was planted out of our church. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we have a, you know, a great relationship between our two churches. Patrick White is six foot 10. Yeah. Um, now I'm six, four, he's six inches taller than me. That's you know, negligible difference. I mean, there's a lot of people that I'm friends with that are five ten. I'm six six inches taller. He could than put them. me in his pocket. <laughs> well, I mean, he's just he is, and just an imposing figure, and so that just a six inch height difference. Once you reach that height, is it's impressive. And so, whenever the average height of a male. Jew, uh, or, you know, the Hebrew people in this time, they would have been like five feet tall, a little more than that. So you could have, you know, some would say Goliath was six foot six. Others would say he's over nine feet tall, depending on how you read the original Hebrew. Either way, if you're, if you're six foot six and I mean, like you're, that's, that's a foot and a half taller than you. That's, that's incredibly intimidating. Mm -hmm. And, that that height difference is what they're referring to in the story of David and Goliath, the story of Joshua and Caleb, um, uh, the story of Og's bed, like the story of Og's like, bed. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, the so, Bible's clearly saying there there are these, yeah, we're uh, grasshoppers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so whenever I, I I read these texts from the the Book of Enoch, now again, this is not Bible. So what I re- just read to you was not Scripture. Um, the this book was cited uh, positively. Uh, it's quoted in the book of Second Peter. It's quoted in the book of Jude. This story is cited in both of those books. So the story that it represents, maybe not every detail, but the general story that is represented in the book of Enoch is was, was cited by Peter and Jude as having meaning for the, the gospel of Christ, what Jesus accomplished. And that's the point I'm making here is not to say Enoch is scripture, although some in the early church argued that it should have been included. But uh, I want to argue that the story that it tells, my view is that it is a true story, but I don't have that. Uh, I, I don't say that because Enoch is scripture. I say that because the story that Enoch tells is affirmed in scripture. Does that make sense? Yeah, what I'm it does. Is it Let clear? me just come alongside of it real quick. So I, I've got, I, I, we both do. I know, but I just want to make sure for the right, the sixty-six books in your Bible. That is the inspired word of God. Period. Full yes. stop. Um, we, we don't. We're not. We don't think. Uh, you know, James is a little less inspired than Romans because you know James has that tricky text about being justified by our works. works. Yeah. Like, no, the Bible is the Bible. <clears throat> period. Full stop. It's the inerrant, inspired word of God. Um, it's God breathed. What we know is that there are also other texts, traditions, even archaeological evidence, like real things that were recorded somehow by real human beings who lived at the same time as the Bible writers or who, or shortly thereafter. And so, for instance, it, 
it, it's great to me that we have things like Tacitus, you know, and he's able to mention Jesus. And it's great to me that we have things like Josephus yeah. to tell us what happened in AD 70. Similarly, it's great that we have, and we should probably say this is the same Enoch who in the book of Genesis it says was taken. Yeah. Uh, so this is a text written by people who were ancient. Yeah. Um, and th- this is what they believe happened around the time of Enoch and Noah and the Watchers and the Nephilim. I'm sure it has mistakes in a way that the book of Exodus doesn't, in the way that everybody, the book I wrote about mm-hmm. Nephilim has mistakes. Ooh, it's got a backwards quotation mark on page four that bothers the crap out of me. <laughs> but, you know, it's not inerrant. But it was a scribal error. It was. But, but that said, um, the people who were closer to what actually occurred and who believed in Yahweh we have good reason to give them a seat at the table as we try to figure out yeah. uh, what happened that the Bible, the Bible tells us a good portion of it, but there were things that happened that the Bible doesn't record and didn't see fit to record. We don't need to know them for salvation, yeah. but it's not wrong to say, well, what's this text here? Yeah. This text that might have mistakes and might have. Yeah. So Enoch in the book of Genesis, he's in the genealogy saying he's the seventh from Adam, as I recall. Something like that. Yeah. And that's like Noah's grandfather, great grandfather or something like that. Yeah. Right. Right. So there, there are those that say Enoch represents a, uh, pre-Diluvian history. Is that how you'd mm-hmm. say it? I know mm-hmm. there's anti-Diluvian as a word pre. So Enoch is, he, his, he tells a story that predates the flood and presumably since Noah was his grandson, uh, maybe great grandson, but, but he would have. I mean, God took him. The scriptures tell mm-hmm. us, but um, but the story of Enoch is. I mean, it's 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 kind of fantastical in places um, where Enoch goes, and he is a he is sort of a representative that goes back and forth between God and the judged watchers who are in torment, and that's what is being referred to in Second Peter and Jude. Um, that that uh, well, I won't get into the details there, but the. The point being is that it was assumed by many that the story that it tells came from Enoch. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether or not this is his actual writing or some oral tradition that was passed down and written down later. And um, since the Holy Spirit inspired Peter and Jude, we can and should absolutely presume that whatever they tell us that would correspond to the book of Enoch, whatever portions they say that correspond to it, those are absolutely true. Yeah. So I'll, if I can ask you to, you, you don't have that in front of you, do you, Wade? Um, this document I'm looking at. Um, no, I don't. Okay. I, I can't. I can't. There's a few church father quotes. Um, I was going to ask you to pick one out. Um, but if, if you happen to open it up, I was going to ask you to read one of those. Maybe Tertullian would be the best one. Um, but let me make a few observations from the Enoch text as we, before we move on. Number one, de- demons were the spirits of dead Nephilim. So demons, when we think of a demon... And this this is my view. I do believe this to be the case. Demons aren't um, like Satan, and he just fell back in the garden, and he's a demon. Um, Satan is a fallen, rebellious, wicked spirit. He's an evil spirit. But there's a—not all evil, rebellious spirits are demons. Demons are the spirits of the dead giants. I know that sounds weird. Even the first time I read that, um, I was just like, man, that's so weird. But that is what the some of these ancient works attested to. The Book of Enoch talks about it, and the the quotes that I have that uh, maybe Wade could read one of them here in a second. Um, he talks about how 
that's that's what Tertullian believed, and they believe it. Um, not the Bible doesn't say that, um, and that's that's why we that's why have to we're, we're we're looking at other sources that were contemporaneous to the biblical writers, and and I. And Wade and I, we are Bible guys. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We're not. We're not trying to play fast and loose, but we're trying to account for the fact that the all of these church fathers taught this way. Second um, Peter and Jude they include this story in their books. So there's there is some true story that they are referring to, and this story of the Book of Enoch talks about how whenever the Nephilim the children of the sinful union in Genesis 6, whenever those children, the giants, whenever they died, because they are neither fully human nor fully man, they are neither welcome, they don't go to the heavens, uh, nor do they go to the underworld, but rather they are, they're kind of locked here on the earth and they wreak havoc on the earth. And so that's why um, whenever we get into the New Testament time, there's no demons that predate the first mention of a demon in the Bible is in the New Testament. They show up on the scene in the book of Matthew, Jesus casting out demons, and the New Testament never stops to say, okay, now hang on, here's what demons are. Let me just explain this to you. It never does that. It assumes everybody's going to know what these demons are. Mm. Um, and so for that reason, there was some knowledge that the New Testament writers assumed people had. And based on that assumed knowledge, they tell the story, Jesus has power over these demons. So, yeah, I can read the Tertullian quote. Um, Furthermore, we are instructed by our sacred books how from certain angels who fell of their own free will, there sprang a more wicked demon brood condemned of God along with the authors of their race. Their great business is the ruin of mankind. So from the start, spiritual wickedness sought our destruction. Accordingly, they inflict upon our bodies diseases and other grievous calamities, and by violent assaults, they hurry the soul into sudden and extraordinary excesses. By an influence equally obscure, demons and angels breathe into the soul and rouse up its corruptions with furious passions and vile excesses. Sounds from a guy... Uh, a few hundred years after Christ, I believe he's in heaven. He's a little quirky at times, but he's a church father we go to very often. <laughs> well, he's the guy that that then he coined the term Trinity. Yeah, I think there's some like debate, like, but but yeah, he is one of the two I think guys that people first attribute the word Trinity to. I mean, he's a, a solid Christian theologian. He's got yeah. as many quirks as any of the rest of us. But a couple hundred years after Jesus, uh, and and we lean on Tertullian a lot as Christians. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So first point: demons were spirits of dead Nephilim. Two, demons lusted after human flesh and wished to be embodied. We talked about this in a previous episode, so I won't belabor the point here. But um, just as human beings are enticed by the spiritual realm because it's this thing just beyond our reach, uh, I think the 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 opposite is 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 true also to where spiritual beings desire to be embodied, and we see that in demons. Uh, they they lust after human flesh sexually. They couldn't eat food, but nevertheless were hungry, as uh, the book of Enoch attests to that. Um, Number three, demons are associated with sexual immorality. So same point as the previous, but there's a a unique sin, uh, sinning of sexual immorality that has a demonic element. Um, 
so there's pagan religions almost always have a deviant sexual practice as part of their cult. Um, and the fourth point, demons appear in the New Testament without explanation. Um, so just real connecting this to our present day, when you say they're associated with sexual immorality, that is something you and I smell, right? And mm-hmm. on, on the, in the 2023 American landscape with rampant sexual immorality and not even just rampant as in like there's lots of people doing it, but like the kinds of sexual immorality yes. is it, it's increasingly <clears throat> deviant. It's increasingly weird uh, and harmful. Yeah. You and I smell the demonic in that. Absolutely. And it's a, and the thing that's weird is like, it's becoming more and more overt. It's not, it's not subtle. Sam Smith at the Grammys. Yeah. Have we talked about this on an no. episode yet? I don't think you and I have talked about it in person yet. Okay. Well, um, I'm sure if you're listening to this, it's a, a is it the Grammys a few weeks ago? Yeah. And can you, you want to, yeah, I mean, I didn't watch the video because I didn't want to see it, but it was something satanic, essentially like devil costume design and the song is the name of the song is unholy. Yeah. And they're dressed up in a cartoonish demon outfit. And this is a guy who now himself, right. Doesn't identify as man or woman. Yeah. He's a non-binary. Right. Um, so he, he is, he is clearly, and that's like a big part of his, presentation of himself as a musical act is like this this is a part of who I am now. Yeah. So he's he's clearly uh his his presentation of the demonic and the hellish and the satanic is not just totally disconnected from check out my non-binary self. Yeah. Like he in his mind <laughs> they're closely connected. Yeah. And I would say yes, correct. They are mm-hmm. closely connected. Yeah, we did this in a previous episode, um, several episodes back, where we talked about just the connection between um, androgyny and paganism. Yeah. But, I mean, I would say all manner of sexual morality is, there is a demonic element in it. Certainly it is it is the desire of evil spirits to to promote this sort of, this particular version of wickedness. Um, but I think what, what I'm observing as new is that, it's not your garden variety having an affair. Right. And that's not to make light of that, but that is known and that is fairly common that those, that that happens. But now there is a, an expressed spiritual element to it. Yeah. Increasingly our fetishes are hell's fetishes. Yeah. <laughs> you've, got a, you've got a way with, I love it. All right. Uh, one, uh, one other point here. Um, the Jewish people of Jesus's day, they had an expectation that when the Messiah came, he would have supremacy over evil spirits. Whenever modern people think about the gospel, uh, and I, we've said this many times recently that we're not Darwinian naturalists, but we tend to approach our faith that way. And that's a habit that I'm personally trying to break. I personally, that's my default, is when I think of the gospel, I think of forgiveness of sin, mm-hmm. and that's that's how it applies to me. I don't really think about Jesus overcoming evil spirits because I don't encounter evil spirits that I see or I'm aware of. So it's, it, but the thing that I'm pointing out here is that if you go into other cultures of, mm-hmm. in, in pioneering missionary environments, Trinidad, I remember a guy from Trinidad did a presentation at my church uh, long, many years ago growing up. Um, and he would just talk openly about not merely that they would, 
they believed in evil spirits, but they were terrorized by them. Yeah. Like there would be evil spirits that would come to them at night and they were freaked out like this, this, the people that this guy was ministering amongst. And for them, the gospel message is yes, Jesus died for you. He forgive your sins, but Jesus is victorious over evil spirits. Amen. And in the name of Christ, there is power over them. That's not something we experience. I have my theory about why that is. My theory is that, the presence of the Christian faith in the United States of America, where we live in the Western world generally, the presence of the church, the the way that the gospel has advanced in our society has corresponded to a weakening of demonic and spiritual powers in those areas. But now we're seeing the Christian, Christian faith decline mm-hmm. in the West, and we're seeing an uptick in aggressive spiritual practices, just like the... Um, the article I started off with with Newsweek. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Thirty years time, Wiccan practices went from eight thousand to three hundred forty thousand followers. Yeah, I mean, where where the divinity of Jesus Christ is not assumed, the divinity of something else will be, and that's that's what you'll see. Is so you know, one hundred and fifty years ago, whether or not the vast majority of humans in America were born again, I don't know. Probably not, but. The, the institutions and the laws and the culture and the art of America assumed the divinity of Jesus Christ. It assumed yeah. that Jesus was not merely a Palestinian rabbi. He was God in some way, even yeah. if I'm a Unitarian or even if I'm like, in some way, Jesus was something. And as our culture has discarded that belief in the true God, it's going to believe in something. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're making me think think of something and I'm wanting to look up the reference for it. Well, um, while you're doing it, I can real quick tell you, you, you talk about evil spirits in Trinidad. Uh, I think about 150 years ago in what is today Nigeria, um, they believed that twins were the result of um, evil spirits. And, really? Twins? Yeah, yeah, twins. And so there was a, uh, a British missionary, and her name escapes me at the moment. Um, a listener can, I can look it up later, or a listener can email us, but... There was a British missionary, a woman who went there, and one of the parts of her Christian ministry was teaching these people, no, twins are a gift from God, the God who actually exists. My point is, I don't think it's impossible that there were evil spirits that were communicating to these tribal chieftains and wizards. Yeah. Hey, kill those twins. Yeah. Goodness. Because demons hate babies. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, the thought that came to mind as you're talking about just Christendom and the presence of Christ as as the the things of God are sort of embedded within and and permeated throughout a culture um, that does have an effect. I think of uh, musicians like Bach, who mm, yeah. explicitly wrote music to glorify God. Um, the so the music of a culture, the literature of a culture, is just steeped in biblical imagery. The uh, the the government of a country uh, has as a self conscious acknowledgement of a creator God and an accountability before Him and a fear of God. That's not to say every single one of these places there are born again people who will be in heaven. However, it is it is the flavor, it is the spirit mm-hmm. that, and I do think that there is a governing. I do think like a there is a spiritual presence. So when we say the spirit of the age. What often we mean by that is a a vibe or a culture or something like that. But I am increasingly convinced that there is an actual spirit mm-hmm. um, or spirits or some, but it is it is a spiritual thing that we're talking about. 
so uh, as you as you told this as you mentioned that earlier, what came to mind was like going to let's say you go to Iran, um, everything there is Muslim, mm-hmm. top to bottom, everything is Muslim. Yep. So you're gonna you're gonna be in that environment, gonna be hesitant to. You know, it's like if if you start to proclaim the gospel publicly, you know that you're, it's it's going to be an intimidating environment. It's not a welcome message, mm-hmm. and that spirit will suffocate uh, can suffocate a gospel message. Um, the text that came to mind is Matthew twelve, where Jesus says, "When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none." Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. Mm. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Mm. So also will it be with this genera- this evil generation. May America be those waterless places. Yeah. <laughs> you know, where the demon, the unclean spirit goes, and it, man, I can't find any rest here. I better go somewhere else. Yeah. Well, I... The way that I would apply that is, I would apply that in a similar way. Jesus says person. Um, so I, I I don't think I'm pressing too far, but, you know, you can push back on me if you think this is inaccurate. But I was I, w- I would apply this at a national level or, you know, just mm-hmm. a, a broad cultural society level to where you had within Christianity or within the United States, rather, you had a presence of Christianity, um, a respect for the Christian faith, uh, in God we trust, that sort of thing. That doesn't mean every nope. every signer of the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution or whatever, like they were born again Christians. But that does mean that this was the general spirit. Over the last hundred years or so, there's been an erosion to where you have empty forms. You have form of religion without the power, as Second Timothy would say. So there is a these forms now, it's like a house that's clean, swept, it's empty, put in order, but there is no there yeah. the there is no acknowledgement of the God who gave them those forms. And now those forms have been inhabited by evil demonic spirits such that you have Christian pastors that will say, uh, the gospel requires us to affirm homosexuality and LGBTQ. It's like that is, that is taking an empty house, right? The form of Christianity and filling it with demonic content, right? That's standing in your United Methodist church with the cross on it that John Wesley helped to build, who actually believed in yeah. the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you're borrowing all his credibility and you're standing in his suit and you're standing behind his pulpit hmm. and you're waving your, you know, with your blue hair there, waving your hand, <laughs> telling us that <laughs> it's it's preposterous. It's preposterous. Blue hair isn't like a really old lady, sweet little no, old no, lady no, not with at her all. Bible not in at her all. purse. By the way, Mary Slesser, that was the name of the... Uh, you had to find uh, out. The okay. No, you're 100% right. I, I, I don't want to make us linger too much, but I just, I got to say I this. was going to ask you to read the Matthew text. So All right, I'll if you can it. do that after you say your comment. Uh, just let me say this one thing. You and I both believe that nations are like households, okay? Yeah. When I say, if I were to say to somebody, picture a Christian home, you would have something in your mind. You wouldn't go, well, such a thing doesn't exist. There's not Christian homes. Only people can be saved. Yeah. You would have in your mind something, right. whether it's, you know, probably images of peace and people who are uh, praying and people who are the same thing. Don't don't play this game where I say, OK, we want a Christian nation. And you go, you can't have a Christian nation. Nations can't be saved. If, can you have a Christian home? Yes. You can have a Christian nation. And a Christian nation would be one where the grounding of the laws and the grounding of the society are biblical truth. But Wade, 
That's Christian nationalism. Mm-hmm. You're either going to have Christian nationalism or pagan nationalism. Which one you want? Hmm. Well, <laughs> I think I'll take the Christian one. <laughs> right. Me too. <laughs> All right. Sorry, the Matthew text. Let me uh, find it in our... It's Matthew 16, 13 to 18. Okay. I'm gonna, just going to open my hard copy Bible. Do you still... Does it? Do our millennials listening know what a hard copy Bible is? So, so dear millennials and Gen Z people... There used to be this thing called paper back when we cut yeah, down trees. Yeah, and the thing that we would read, we would read those words off on the paper, mm-hmm. and those were called books. That's right. History lesson over. Matthew 16, 13 through 18. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said... Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Praise God. Amen. Okay. In this story, this is the first time that the disciples understood Jesus' true identity. They, it was more of a, I think there was a light bulb moment here, but it wasn't as though they had no clue. It's a progressive. Right. So there was this, could he be the Messiah thing going on up until that point? But this is the first time Jesus puts the question to him. Who do people say that I am? Eh, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. All right, Peter, Q&A time. Who do you say that I am? Peter gives the right answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the first time that Jesus' identity is out in the open, and Jesus blessed him, affirmed that what he said was true. The location is part of the story. Um, at the very beginning, you said in verse 13, you read it, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, that's uh, that's not just a geographical marker, but that is part of the story, because the um, in Caesarea Philippi that was a we've mentioned in a previous episode that Mount Hermon mm-hmm. was this this area where according to the Book of Enoch, Book of Enoch says that the Watchers descended the Genesis six story, they descended on Mount Hermon. So that was where they came out of heaven down onto the earth, and Mount Hermon was where they they entered into the earth to go find that, women. Where the rebel spirits who fathered the giants, where they touched down. Yes, Mount Hermon. So Mount Hermon is this place of, uh, it's like an Area 51, mm-hmm. if, as it were. So it's, like, it's a place where this has way massive significance, spiritually speaking. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the Christians and the Jews that believe this. This was universally acknowledged in that region, the you know the the Mesopotamian religions, the Egyptians, all these different uh, Romans and the Greeks. They all believed this was a massively significant place because they all acknowledged some version of this story. Um, so it's like if Jesus were telling me a story, and I was we were at Pearl Harbor, yeah. I, I would know. Okay, that what he's saying is connected to this. Yeah, or, that's a great analogy. Okay, yeah. So you're at Pearl Harbor, and Jesus says, "Hey, Wade." the church it will will prevail. The gates mm-hmm. of hell will not overcome the church. And you'll be encouraged because your your surrounding environment testifies to something that feels like a defeat. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great that's a great analogy. Another thing that's in this area, so you have Mount Hermon, 
the base, at the base of Mount Hermon, there's this city called Caesarea Philippi. In the Caesarea, in the town of Caesarea Philippi, there was this cave, and the cave is thought to be the cave of Pan. So the like the ancient pagan god Pan, and Pan is like a total pervert, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> total pervert of a pagan god. But the cave of Pan was regarded to be the gateway to the underworld. So you had at the same site, you had a place where the watchers descended from heaven to mate with women to spawn the giants, and you had a gate to the underworld. And the gateway to the underworld is like there was a belief that in this cave of Pan, the you know the dead, not not the dead humans, but the wicked gods. You know mm-hmm. the the evil spirits would would pass back and forth into the underworld at this place. Um, so it was a uh, it was too deep to measure. It was filled with water too, so it was like uh, it's, it felt like a bottomless pit. So they would you mm-hmm. know try to take measurements, and it was too deep for any of the ancient uh, tools to measure. Um. So they, it was known as the gates of hell. Right here at Caesarea Philippi is the gates of hell. And so even if you and I would not necessarily believe that literally that cave led to a spiritual reality, the, the point would still hold that everybody there listening to Jesus, that's what this place has that sort of aura, yeah. significance, meaning. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so what well, you can think of it, um, I think either interpretation that I'm about to present is, is valid. It could be that this Jesus was actually affirming that there is something here about this place, and whether or not you could just dig down into the earth, get to the other. I'm not saying that that that's the case, but he he was affirming that in the spiritual realm, let's say the upside down mm-hmm. of the of the ancient world, that this here this, this is a hot spot. Yeah, this is a ground zero spiritually speaking. This is a hotbed of demonic activity. So either he was saying that, which I think that's valid. He could also be saying, using it as a as a teaching device. Um, so here's the thing that everybody around here believes. Let me tell you, I have overcome the spiritual evil that is associated with these things, mm-hmm. even though he's not saying it is an actually a hotspot. My personal view is it's an actual hotspot. Okay, but that's uh, that's just me. Um, Greeks and Romans they had temples there to acknowledge that this is their, mm-hmm. that's their spot. In these temples, they practice cult prostitution, sexual morality. So it was a, is a kind of a red light district. Um, so again, sexual immorality connected to the worship of false yeah. gods, unclean spirits. Yeah. So it's a rocky place. Um, I, I, I preached a sermon on this uh, several months ago and I, I had some pictures and it's a, mm-hmm. it kind of looks like uh, in the, Star Wars, the A New Hope, the the episode four, the the original Star Wars. Yeah, when you have uh, on Tatooine. Yeah, and you've got R two D two kind of rolling around, mm-hmm. and um, those guys the, who do the weird grunting and they shoot. Uh, uh, are they Jawas? Is that what you call Jawas? Them? Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's like the special effects were were fantastic. You oh, got yeah. uh, let's let's take two little beady flashlights mm-hmm. and put a cloak over mm-hmm. it. <laughs> it's beautiful. Um. Anyway. So it was a rocky area. So now, with all that backstory in mind, um, let me read this verse again. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus, Peter just said, Hey, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. Jesus says, on this rock, so he says, I'll tell you, Peter, Mm -hmm. uh, on this rock, 
I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So that given all that backstory, there's a whole lot more that is in view there. And I think Jesus absolutely is, uh, has that in mind. He is saying that this place, so the gates of hell, the, the, the gates to the underworld, the gates to hell, to, to death, um, these, this thing will not prevail against the church. So, of course, he is victorious over it because he is the son of the mm-hmm. living God. But not only that, his church, his people, the, the congregation of God's people will overcome the gates of hell. So gates being defensive structures, he's signaling the church is on offense and hell can't withstand it. And so there's no way that Peter would listen to this and think of merely just, okay, Jesus has come to defeat, you know, ideas and philosophies and sins in the abstract. Yeah. He, Peter would know. He's, Jesus has better ideas than these pagans. Right. No, he would, he would know. Okay. My, this Messiah has crushed unclean rebel spirits that I've heard stories about since I was a little boy. Like mm-hmm. the the things that afflict my people and the things that permeate our world that hate humans. And yeah, he crushed them. He defeated them. All the bad guys. All the bad guys we can't see. Yeah, yeah. So you imagine you're this village in Trinidad somewhere, mm-hmm. and you and they understand the meaning of that story. Like, yeah. hey, that that demon that is terrorizing your daughter at night. Right. Christ is victorious over that demonic power. Surrender your life to him, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then you will have access to the one right. who can cast out that evil spirit. Um, and you will be a part of this ecclesia, this church, this church, against which that thing will never prevail. Yeah. And the church, I mean, it's it, it's just natural and automatic to think, uh, you know, you know, buildings and maybe stained glass or whatever, yeah. but a church in that village in Trinidad, you know, yeah. it's like you and, you know, the seven or eight other people that have converted to Christianity, you have real power. That's right. From the creator God over the demonic element. That's right. You are those GIs storming the beach at Normandy, and it doesn't matter how many bullets the Nazis shoot at you, you're going to win. You yeah. win, you win this war. Yeah. You're on the winning side. Ultimately. Yeah. yeah. You win the war. I, I, yeah. I say ultimately just because would want to insinuate that bad things don't happen to us. Absolutely. But, but yes, I, I do think it has real world live. That's right. We have power now. Both, both of the men in this dialogue were crucified. Yes. So we know bad things happen. Yeah. Jesus and Peter. That's right. So we yeah. know bad things happen. And yet the one tells the other, the gates of hell will never prevail. Yeah. Yes. I mean, this is, this is a powerful statement and um, I think it's a taunt. It's a Jesus. It's kind of, you know, uh, (laughs) uh, it's like Juju Smith Schuster. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know what I'm talking about? When they, there was a, a, so the Bengals and the Steelers have this rivalry and Juju Smith Schuster used to play for the Steelers. And there was a game where was it what was it when he was with the Steelers where he like danced on the Bengals logo? Yeah, that's I'm actually not I'm having trouble remembering that exact moment. But it was, that it does was, sound like something a Steeler would do. It was a kerfluffle. Yeah, it was a it was a bit of a hubbub. Mm-hmm. But it's it's kind of like that. Jesus is like, hey Satan, I'm going to your turf. Um, and, and Caesarea Philippi is in the far north of Israel. Really, it's there. It's about as far away and still be like kind of in their region in, in their nation about as far north as you get from like Jerusalem or something. Mm-hmm. So 
there doesn't really se- there doesn't really seem to be any reason for them to be there, except because of what the significance of the site. So it's kind of like Jesus saying, "I'm going to go on your turf, Satan, and I'm going to crush you, and my people are going to crush you. Mm-hmm. You are defeated." It, yeah. it, it's similar to how he used uh, sin's own weapon against it. Death is the power of sin, and yet, what did Christ use to yeah. to save us? He used he, death. He used death. I will I will come into your territory, and I will defeat you there, and I will defeat you with your own weapon. Yeah. Praise God. So, um, well, let, let's let's um, let that be our segue to uh, the just the victory accomplished. Um, in the in the gospel, Jesus did use the very tools of Satan, uh, of death, and the sin and wickedness of men to overcome Satan. Mm-hmm. So the the sin of men, the the hubris of men to crucify the Messiah, to kill him, to hang him on a cross in the most wicked and cruel fashion, that became the very instrument of God's redemption. To where we could say that the the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen. So Jesus suffered death at the cross, but he defeated death in his resurrection. And the victory was not merely a victory to save people from sin, which it was. It was also a victory over a real personal enemy, Satan, and all the personal evil spirits that still haunt the earth. Their days are numbered. They will yeah. They will be defeated. Can I ask real quick... I, I, We've got just a minute we can probably spend on this, and I, it's too good not to. We have not really said anything about Satan as sort of, the, he's the only named unclean spirit, unless you want to count Legion, that we have. Uh, can we? Can, yeah, can, yeah. can you explain for a minute your take on, you know, who is this creature? Um, what was his original state? Um, what was the nature of his fall? And you know, what motivates him now and his final end? Well, I, I think, it, I think he would have been uh, part of the divine council. Um, so I think he would have been uh, in a, technically speaking, like would have been among one of the gods, the, so the, sons, the sons of, of God. So whenever Jesus is the son of God, the son of the most high, he is like preeminent amongst them because he is equal to the Father, mm-hmm. whereas the others are created beings. Christ was the uncreated Son of God. But in terms of uh, they all occupied this council together. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, what motivated him is, is, is difficult to say. I, I don't know that I have a, I have a, 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 an opinion on that. But I do think that, the, um, that what would motivate him now would be uh, playing for time. Because unless he just is, un, it's hard to imagine he'll be unaware of the consequences of the death and resurrection of mm-hmm. Christ. However, God sovereignly allows sin to continue, and we know that because he is um, he is patient so that those who will be saved have the opportunity to repent and do so. Mm-hmm. So God is patient with sin. Um, I believe it's First Timothy, uh, or, or is it First uh, Peter? Uh, God is not slow to keep us. That's First yeah. Peter, isn't it? Yeah, but then, in, uh, but He also uh, desires that all everywhere repent. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it, God is merciful. He there's there's a number of His elect that have yet the opportunity to to hear the gospel and believe. Um, so there's a Satan would be motivated to uh, to forestall mm-hmm. his final judgment, and um, 
And the way to do that would be to go after the agent that God has appointed mm. to overcome, which is the church, to attack the church. The church is, we are, the gospel has been entrusted to us. We are the ones who propagate the gospel, guard the good deposit. That is our calling. That's what we do. We safeguard it. We proclaim it. Um, and if you can attack the church, slow down the church, um, then you can slow down the spread of the gospel and and stall your own destruction. Stall your own demise. Yeah. A couple of years ago, I read a biography of Hitler and um, is a is a massive. Um, it's a a thick book that described his whole life, but I just remember the end stuck with me where he's down in this bunker for the last couple of weeks when um, the Allied troops are coming in, they're Russia on one side and American England on the other, and he's just in this bunker underneath the streets of Berlin, I think. And he knows. He knows it's over. Mm-hmm. But he's still maneuvering and scheming and doing yeah. these things down in this bunker. And, you know, you just get this image of, like, every once in a while... a you know, a bomb explodes overhead from an allied plane and there's just ash or what, or uh, dust coming down from the light fixtures and he's hearing all of it and he, kn- he knows, he knows he's lost and yet he's yeah. still got his maps out and he's still trying to think. And that, yeah. that kind of, to me, feels about like what you're describing and I think that is, is probably true, which is that the devil must know. He must know. Yeah. Not only is his, his end in sight, but that Jesus has already won the victory, yeah. and yet he's got his maps out, and he's just, he's, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, the um, so the final judgment, where it's all headed, there are there are two judgments. There's a judgment of humans and a judgment of evil spirits, judgment of angels. So um, for the judgment of humans, uh, the destiny of every believer is to become what Adam and Eve were originally created to be which is immortal, glorified imagers of God living in his presence as his children. Mm. Uh, the Reformed tradition, we call this glorification. Uh, Orthodox tradition, uh, they put a little mustard on it, and they mm. call it deification. Mm. That's a scary um, word. Yeah, I, I don't mind it, uh, because I, I don't think that it means we will be like equal to God, but that we will be amongst the gods. And I, I don't... That doesn't bother me. I think that's exaltation. You will be exalted with Christ. So that that happens in tandem with our union with Christ. As he is exalted, we are exalted with him because we are in him and he is in us. Um, I mean, obviously, there are all the all yeah. the, the cautions that you would say. And that's why I'm sure that's why the reformers uh, glorification is is a word that we're more comfortable with here. But here's what I would be comfortable saying. <clears throat> The, the beings that come into the stories in the Old Testament, like Michael and Gabriel, mm-hmm. and who everybody falls down and worships, 1 Corinthians says you will judge those beings. Yeah. So you are not... You're going to be something. <laughs> yeah, and and I think that's... that uh, You mentioned earlier about what motivates Satan. Uh, this is speculative, but in, in my view, I think that that's, that's probably... Uh, in the neighborhood, in that Psalm 8, I believe it's Psalm 8, or is it Psalm 19? We were created a little less. What is man mm-hmm. that you're mindful of him? Mm-hmm. Uh, the son of man that you uh, regard him or think of him? But you were created a little lower than the angels. So we're a little lower than the angels, so they outrank us. And yet, we will judge them in mm-hmm. in the return of Christ. That's 
So if if God created us and they knew that 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 there would be some, I see. I I think that human beings were created with a capacity for change, which is a unique human thing, and that change is a progression from one degree of glory to another. I think Adam and Eve were born with certain capacities, or not born. They were created with certain capacities, mm-hmm. but they were to fill the earth and take dominion. And there's this movement from lesser to greater, even in a perfected state, there was a movement from lesser to greater that human beings would some would in some way ascend the ranks to where they would create it lower, but be in a position to judge the angels later. Yeah. I mean, there, I, there's I think a that reason, triggered envy. There's a reason why I, I think that comports with God, Abraham, Peter, um, there are, there are instances in the, in the, um, in the scriptures, Abraham, Jacob, and Peter, all three, he gives new names, but Gabriel and Michael, you meet in the old Testament and in the new Testament, they're still Gabriel and Michael. Yeah. Like the growth and conversion and, um, renewal and reorientation. Those are features of as humanity, human stories. Yeah, and that's where I get that idea. And this, this is a. I'll 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 mention this, and then we should move on. Uh, but the book of Luke tells us that the, in the infancy and childhood narratives of Jesus that um, he grew in wisdom and stature. Um, we're talking about a perfect being, a perfect uh, child of a human. Yet, so in his divine nature, he was perfect, um, sinless lacking nothing, but his human nature was able to, to grow in wisdom and stature. He was able to acquire knowledge even, which it kind of, it's kind of mind blowing. And I hope I'm not saying something heretical, but it's just, it's kind of mind blowing that, that Jesus, we, that's, that's just, yeah, that's what humanity is. And I think that is part of eternity. Human yeah. beings for all eternity will experience one degree of glory and then the next day, an additional degree of glory, and the next day, another degree of glory. So there's this change, this motion will always be in a better direction. So that a trillion years from now, there will be there will be something mind-blowingly glorious about humanity. Of course, always received from Christ, in Christ, within Christ. You know, it's like never approaching His glory, but mm-hmm. but God shares that with us, and that's our union with him as Christ is glorious. So we will also be glorious. And that's, that's mind blowing and exciting. And in God's sovereign will, uh, it was his will that it was through sin that God, you worked through sin that he foreknew what happened to bring this about. But that's a, yeah, that's a deep subject. The, the other thing I was going to say, just two judgments, judgment of humans, which I just mentioned, and you you mentioned the other one, the judgment of angels, mm-hmm. and we will be we will be those judges. Um, let's let's wrap up this episode, uh, or at least this part. We'll we'll do a listener question. Um, we have a few minutes where we can uh, take a listener question. Do you have one ready for us, Wade? I do, I do. Um, this is a good one. It is. This is a good one. It is. Okay. Um, so this question comes from a Camilla H in the District of Columbia. Um, <laughs> Let me Kamala, uh, how do you spell Kamala? Um, K-A-M-A-L-A, but then she signed it uh, VP. I don't know what that means. 
but she did put very an, precious. But she did put an X through the V. So ooh, yeah. I don't. Hmm. I don't. I wonder what that could mean. But um, I and I'm I'm assuming it's a woman. But great question here. Okay, hello. I'm loving the current reality podcast so far. Thanks for starting it. I have a question. I would enjoy hearing discussed. What do you think of the Enneagram? I have a Christian relative who has gone pretty deep into it. She applies it regularly to her life and even gave me a book of Enneagram poetry. Um, very uncomfortable with some of the things. Uh, I've struggled to clearly articulate why it bothers me so much. But as Christians, uh, should we use it? it I'm, I'm trying to protect some of Camilla's uh, details here so that uh, she doesn't have any awkward conversations at Thanksgiving if she runs into this relative. But <laughs> basic idea is, okay, is, is the Enneagram something that we as Christians uh, should use, should consult? Is it in bounds or out of bounds? And you're looking at me. Um, <laughs> I'll, 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 make, I'll, I'll have a couple comments. Yeah, I'll, I'll stay out of it. Here, here's my first comment. Um, dear listener, you may have detected that, um, these Wade, uh, makes jokes with the, uh, the identity of the, the people who send in their questions. Mm-hmm. I don't want, do not let that deter you from sending in your question. Cause these are real questions. Right. We just, we just uh, protect their identity with a joke. So feel free to send in a question and we, you never know your question. You could be, uh, George WB mm-hmm. or something from, Houston, from, Texas. Uh, Texas. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Uh, so the Enneagram, I have a complicated history with the Enneagram. Uh, I first encountered it at a, a church planter training. Um, it was like a, it was like a retreat. And there was some guys who, um, specialized, they use the Enneagram and the way they used it, I thought was very, really helpful. We took a test and, uh, they give you your, your number that, that the way you tested. Um, and whenever they presented the material, I was like, man, this is, this is spot on. And it not spot on in a way that is like subtle and manipulative. Like it's like, you seem to, you know, like enjoying yourself you must be a number or whatever. It's, it's not, it's things that are unique to me and seem to speak to motives within me that I've, I've recognized, but had not even, um, maybe motives that I, I don't think I was aware of, or maybe if I, I was only barely aware of it, but that brought it to the surface to where I was able to see things that I needed to repent of. Um, so, my first experience with it was positive. I loved it. Um, I, we had trainings on it at church. Um, I promoted it. Um, I've used it in premarital counseling. I've seen good results from it. I've used it in leadership training. Um, and I've, I've read some books about it and the, uh, I actually went and got a certification to, it's more of a deeper training on it that, um, and I've, and I've seen it used in helpful ways. So that's not an endorsement because, uh, more recently, just the things that I have read and seen, you know, people that have a lot of discernment in this area have given me pause. It's made me think, you know, have I, have I erred in in some way, erred, (laughs) E-R-R-E-D. Um, have I erred in some way in, I, I don't know that I would say that I have, but I would say at the very least I've stopped using it as a, tool in ministry. Um, 
I can't help but think in those categories sometimes because it, it, it does, it, I find it a, a way to help accelerate a relationship, to understand a person, um, to think like, you know, I, this person seems like maybe a just arbitrary number. This person seems like they might be a nine. Um, if true, then these things might be true of them as well. And that those are things I can ask them about. I, I can ask them things that I might, might help me to understand them. And if, so it's, it's it's something, it's, it's almost uh, automatic, but so the, the reason why it fits in this, in this particular podcast and episode is because there's been some reporting about the origins of it is that it, it's, it's a cultic. I first heard that it was developed by like church fathers and monks in the desert, you know, as they were just mm. praying and seeking the Lord. And, uh, you know, it was like the seven deadly sins were the seven deadly sins of the Enneagram plus, and they added two more because there's nine numbers in the Enneagram. And, um, and I thought this is Christian. This is helpful. This is uh, um, so I. It's how we all felt about the shack when it came out. <laughs> I never kidding. felt I'm that just way kidding. about the I'm shack. Just kidding. So um, yeah, I, I feel I feel conflicted um, because I'm like it's a, it seems like a useful tool. The way that I use it, or the way that I have used it, I think was above board. And um, but the cautions of people that I respect deeply, you being among them. Mm. Um, so we're talking about Wade and I've had this conversation uh, many times and uh, we've really, we're coming at it from two very different places. Wade has been a, a big time skeptic of it and I've been uh, more open to it, but you know, just as Wade has pushed me, I've become much more cautious. And so at this point um, I don't use it. I would not ask somebody to take the test. Um, it's not part of my ministry. I don't know that I would say it's a matter. I don't know that I'd say that's something I've repented of as a sin. If so, may the Lord show it to me and I will repent of it and I will publicly do so. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I, I'm at least deeply cautious and suspicious about it to the point that I don't think it's edifying anymore because I think it could be a stumbling block mm-hmm. for somebody who, somebody who might... Um, I don't know, it could misuse it. And, well, I'm sure you have your own suspicions, and I'll let you uh, articulate. The suspicions that you have, I share them. Yeah. I agree with you about the things you're cautious about. Um, well, so, yeah, I'll just start by saying you're you're more willing to reassess your ministry, your positions, your convictions, your thoughts than any human being I know. I wouldn't be as quick to do it. I like to consider that I'm, you know— that I sit under the authority of the word and that I'm teachable and that I'm able to be admonished, but I'm not as humble as you are. I know that. So that's just for the, the listeners should know um, that that's, that's a feature of your, your soul and your, uh, your ministry and your faith. And it's one that I admire. And uh, I hope, I hope there are things like the Enneagram in my life right now that I don't see. And I hope that when I see them, I rethink them the way you rethink things. Reevaluate. Uh, I am skeptical about it, not so much, and, and I would say even more than skeptical. I've never used it. Uh, I mean, like I've done it when it's been asked of me, but I have never given it much thought. I've never asked anyone to do it, and I don't like it, and I and I have never liked it. And the reason that I have this uh, skepticism of it, I'll basically put it this way: If we were in a cult, give me some really good personality tool, some one that has no connection to Myers Briggs, to demonic Myers Briggs. Give me some, yeah, really good personality tool that's spot on, uses good methodology. Okay, 
If we were in a culture where every Christian I knew was reading their Bible an hour a day, had sufficient knowledge of Scripture, was thoroughly prayed up, was, I mean, just soaked in good doctrine and Christian practice, and then on top of that, they wanted to, to layer this personality tool, go to town. But that's not where we are. Instead, we're in a culture where people are famished in knowledge of Scripture. They don't know the Bible at all. They don't know the narratives. They don't know the story arc. They don't know the teachings of it. We're, we read the Bible less than any generation of Christians since the Reformation, practically, in like the Protestant world. And we don't pray much. Yeah. And in, and But we do. We love our Enneagram. And we love us some personality tests. And we'll take them all day. And we'll, uh, oh, you're, you're a four and I'm a three. And that's why we got married. Or that's why we're such good friends. I don't even know what the numbers are. <laughs> but like, oh, you're an EFNJ and I'm an whatever the other letters are for the Myers-Briggs one. <laughs> we take these tests and we retake them and we take them a fourth time and a tenth time. And I, it is not healthy. It is not healthy to be that. Um, it's not healthy to be that navel gazing and that narcissistic and that obsessed with one's own personality. But it's also not that he- it's not healthy to not go to God's word and not go to prayer and communion with God but then go to these extra biblical tools and really devote a lot of your emotional energy in like relationship maintenance to that. Yeah. I'm going to use I'm going to use the Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram as my lens through which to view my marriage or my relationship to my mom or my relationship to my pastor or my relationship to my small group. Man, if you're going to do that, you bet my counsel would be you had better be reading five times as much Bible as you are Enneagram material. Mm-hmm. And then... Yeah. So, so I have a, a, a yes and amen to all of those things. I share those same reservations, and I think they're spot on. Um, and I don't I don't have any yeah, but. I Just full stop, I agree. What I would add to that is one thing I have observed is the Enneagram has become... Uh, my first exposure to it was here is how to identify... Help you. Here's here's a tool to help you identify sin patterns in your life that are deeper than I drink too much or I look at porn or something like that. But are are deeper. It's like like you're idle. So um, the there's a one of the tools that I've seen uh, that I've used that I really did find this helpful. <laughs> um, it'll it'll say here is a here is your number. Here is your deadly sin or here is your vice. Um, here is a virtue that will push your brain, your heart, your will in a different direction away from that vice. Um, so for for me, uh, when I first took it, um, I don't know, if, I, I, I won't say what my number was. <laughs> I don't want to be, a, I don't want to be thought of through a number. If you're 42. Familiar. 42, that's right, Jackie okay. Robinson. No, um, the, the, uh, the vice is envy. The virtue of transformation is gratitude. Um, that when I first reflected on that, that meant something to me because I see I see both that vice and that virtue uniquely at work. I think I I think I am more thankful than a lot of people that that I encounter. It's it, it just I tend to just be really grateful. Mm-hmm. I, it just kind of flows out of me naturally. At the same time, I can find myself being very envious of people. If people are good at something that I'm not good at. It's like a I envy that. That's a sin that I've repented. And that the Enneagram is a tool that helped me to identify that, showed me here's a path. 
to of repentance, at least a virtue that I want to pray about and aspire to. Um, and there are other things. It's like, here's a set of phrases that someone can say to me. Let's see, what was it? There's, there's, there's a set of phrases. Here's how I can best relate to you, and here's how you can best relate to me. So you, when I've done a leadership training, sit in a room full of pastors or leaders or whatever, and I've done this in premarital counseling, uh, and I'm not going to use it anymore. But it's it's like saying like here is here is a statement that uh, that I might make to you, or here's a statement you might make to me. And when I've used it in premarital counseling, um, I would I would read those statements, look at the person, and ask them, does that does that sound like you? Does that sound accurate? And I've had people say absolutely. None of these other ones from these other numbers really mean anything to me, but this one really does get at what I'm looking at or what, what, what is diff- this relational challenge that we have. Um, and it's been helpful. So here's, here's how I've seen it abused is it becomes your, your sin or your proclivities become, and I, you make an identity out mm-hmm. of it. So it's I'm like, just a four. That's, that's just me. So like in the Enneagram eights tend to be very blunt, direct. Eights be eighting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, it's like, you know, I'm just an eight. That's just how I talk. Uh, you know, I, I just tend to be gruff and, you know, rough around the edges. That's just how I am. Um, I'm like, well, there are personality traits and there are sins to repent of. Don't use your Enneagram number as an excuse. And I've seen that happen so much that I'm just like, I'm sick with this. Yeah. I'm sick with people using it as a way to dismiss their sin as it's like, you know, well, fours, they're just mopey. Yeah. It's like, we just kind of. It was kind of, you know, kind of melancholy or whatever. I'm like, no, that's, there are sins there that you don't just put a number on it and dismiss it. That's like the superstitious lady at your office being like, I'm just a Sagittarius. Yeah. I'm a Scorpio, Pisces. That's just how we roll. So it's, yeah, just to put a bow on it. I would not say, I'm, I would say as a matter of practice, I don't use it. I won't use it anymore. Um, I don't I I could not put that on somebody else and say it is sinful or wrong although I think there is a very strong case to to make that it is unwise mm-hmm. to use it and for it to be known that it is being used um uh, I I'm, guess I'm looking at time I I know you you've got an appointment to get to but yeah uh, well, I'll, I'll I'll put a bow on what you're saying by saying um if if you if you were to tell me Hey, I just, I'm not going to use the Enneagram anymore. I'm going to smile. That's going to make me happy. You know what I mean? It's, it, would I say it's sin? No. But am I happy that you're not using it anymore? Yeah, I'm happy you're not using it. <laughs> um, let's, let's wrap up the episode by just reminding everybody, uh, first of all, please come to the conference. Um, it, you, you will have a great time. You will be ministered to. You will be taught how to speak plainly about the God who exists and his plan for the world. Uh, but as far as our four episodes here that we've done on the spiritual realm and on demons, please take heart knowing that Jesus Christ is victorious. He was victorious the day he was raised uh, from the dead. He used hell's weapon against it. He used sin and Satan's weapon against it. And he is returning for us, his bride. Take heart, Christian. You have nothing to fear because Christ is the victor. 